Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This show is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of the UK's leading Christian magazine, why not head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in. We'd love to send you a free copy of the latest edition of the magazine. But today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Rachel Gardner. Rachel is the relationship lead at Youthscape, responsible for pioneering new ways to engage young people in healthy relationships. She's a best-selling author on a number of books for young people, and she speaks widely on youth and faith-related topics. Rachel is also the president of the Girls' Brigade England and Wales and a volunteer youth leader at her local church. Her latest book is called The Girl Deconstruction Project. It's out now, published by Hodder and Stoughton. And Rachel, it's great to have you on the show. Wow, thank you, Sam. That was a thorough, like, bio. I'm going to take notes. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, we like to do our research here for sure. Um, And in looking at the book as well, uh, as part of the research, obviously, um, I noticed on the blurb, it says this book is about speaking with kindness, truth and sass, which is quite the combo. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I'm going to bring a lot of sass to this interview. I just thought I should let you know, Sam. I'm pleased pleased you're going to keep you on my toes. (laughs) I just chose the word sass because I think like we we there are some words that like we almost don't hear anymore because we like kindness and confidence and love whereas when, when you drop the word assassin people go what like what is that and all it is is just like just tell it as it is really that's what i mean I love how it's it's also quite gender specific, isn't it? Like you wouldn't call a man sassy. <laughs> no, and you wouldn't call a man who's clever feisty either. No. And you wouldn't call a man who's assertive bossy. So that, you're right, ah. it's interesting, isn't it? There's lots of words that we use. So tell me a bit more about the book. It's called The Girl Deconstruction Project. Um, that word deconstruction, you hear quite a lot now actually in, in relation to theology. I'm guessing it's not to do no. with that. Well, well, actually, I, mean, I hadn't really picked up on that, but you're right. I've read a few things recently. Um, I think in a way I am trying to deconstruct a little bit of theology, although this is not a hefty theological tone by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But I think what I wanted to do with the book is really something that I wish someone had done with me when I was in my late teens, early 20s. And that is just identify some of the kind of the constructions around gender, both in church and in society that feel limiting um, and unnecessarily difficult. And say, if we could deconstruct those, what and the space is opened up, um, what could we reconstruct in the light of who Jesus says we are? So it's a book that friends of mine who are not religious, not Christians are reading and taking stuff from um, but it is specifically written in a way for those who kind of identify as Christians and want to reconstruct their identity in light of who Jesus says mm. they are. Talk more about that um, in a moment but we always like to start on the show by asking about a person's life growing up yeah. um, here's something of their testimony so tell me about what life was like for you growing up. Oh, well, oh, gosh, it was a long time ago. So I, <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't that long ago. I sometimes feel like when you recount your past, like, is it, did it really happen? Or am I just, like, picking up a story from somewhere else? But um, I uh, grew up in a Christian family. and my, my parents had just become Christians when I was born and, and were in that kind of first flush of, utter surrender to Jesus. So actually, I think looking back, I absolutely see it as a total privilege being born into a family where my parents said, we're going to give it all. Like, this is not going to be a Sunday Christianity. This is the whole life. Um, it, in my teens, that for my parents meant that we were, they were unemployed and we were homeless. We lived um, with a lovely elderly gentleman called Ernie for four years, sort of sofa served. Um, and so I, I witnessed up close and personal the cost of discipleship. And I saw my parents go through some really challenging Mm. stuff. Um, I think it did uh, kind of rock me a bit um, because I think when you're a teenager and trying to find out who you are um, and a lot of your life is shifting under your feet, that ask you ask big questions. But I think it probably did propel me to ask really big questions as a teenager. Sometimes the apathy that I experience in young people's lives, I don't remember being apathetic. I mean, I might have been, but I don't remember that as a teenager. It felt life and death. Um, so I think I probably had that combination of searching faith, hypocritical faith because I was like trying to pretend I was all that whereas inside actually I was sinking and failing. Tell me more about your uh, your parents and what led to them being in that situation you say you're homeless kind of growing up. Well I mean they they're just phenomenal and they wanted to just hear what God was asking them to do and they really believed it led them to a certain route and a line of you know to to say actually God you we feel you said no to us living here and doing this job but we don't know what that opens up for us so and I really admire them for that I think they they simply responded to what they felt 
felt God said. And, and we were always okay. Mm. We always had a roof over our head. People always looked after us. Um, and then off the back of that, we moved to Ashburnham Place, which is an amazing community wow. where nobody in those days shut their doors, let alone locked their doors. So I think I've grown up with a lovely experience of community life. And um, Ashburnham Place, just, just to check yeah, I'm thinking of the right place. Yeah. This is this incredibly... Uh, battle. Yeah, massive kind of Christian conference yes. centre now in, in Sussex with beautiful grounds. So beautiful what, you were, you were living there? Yes, when I was 16, we moved there. And um, I mean, it's a fascinating place. This is a little kind of advert for them, really. But it's one of these places that um, you just sense the mm. glory of God. It's like, true. it is powerful. I mean, I know people go from all over the place to have retreats there. My parents run some of the retreats there. Um, but there's fascinating stories of what God's done. Um, so yeah, it's one of those places. I think, again, my late teens, early 20s, I was, I was literally shouting at God, marching around the lakes at Ashburnham Place, demanding that he part the waters. And when he didn't part the waters, I was still talking to him. And at the end of that, realised God has not rocked up and done what I ex- what my, this like 19-year-old drama queen wants him to do. But he's made his presence, he's really pressed that in my life. And I, I've not, I'm not looked back oh. since. Really. So with that kind of upbringing, with, with the parents who, who dropped everything to follow yeah. God and t- took risks, yeah. and then growing up in a Christian conference centre, kind of faith was always there right from, from the beginning. Yes, and wrestling faith. So not just the faith that you adopt because no one's ever asked you to question it but you know I, I'm really com- I really want to, to live one life for it to be authentic and to ask big questions and I think my parents are very good at allowing my brother and I the space to ask questions that maybe others would have said that sounds like doubt but I think the mm. big questions are important aren't they I hear more and more Christians talking about this and I think it's quite right that um, there's been a bit of a backlash hasn't there against a form of faith that has been very well we've got all of our theology in exactly these yeah. boxes and we can't question anything and you hear more and more especially younger Christians saying this this isn't right and, yeah. and instead people are talking now about faith and doubt being mm. uh, two sides of the two yeah. sides of the same coin yes I think Christian attitudes towards doubt seems to have changed quite dramatically I, I think so because it feels more humble I, I'm not God I don't know everything so even if I think I've got it all nailed the chances are I haven't so I think I want to hold really lightly the certainty which doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mm. mean that I'm now like, oh, that's fine. But actually, I think I feel there's a sense of a greater certainty that God, whoever God, you know, whatever God says, who he is, I have a real certainty in that. And actually, I'm now going to wrestle with the stuff that I'm like, is it this? Is it that? Um, and I think as well, life experience, God is, um, he, he is unpredictable. Like, don't you just love mm. the story where Jesus um, comes, comes into the boat and calms the waves? Because other times he whips up the storms. Like, this is, this is the God that we follow. So I think as we navigate these tricky issues in culture, let's hold on to who God is and who he says we are. And let's hold lightly sometimes our conviction that our way is the right way. But let's live with conviction. I mean, these are, we're wrestling this all the time, aren't we? So what happened after Ashburnham? <laughs> so after Ashburnham. Um, well, I, I, in my gap year after school, I went and um, joined a brilliant music company called The Continentals. <laughs> and we toured around Spain and Portugal in a coach and, and we sang some crazy songs and it was, we were awful. The organisation was amazing. Um, but in, in the middle of, of one of the, we were one day we were in Portugal and, and every night we stayed with different families. And so I stayed with one family on my own this particular night. They didn't speak English, I didn't speak Portuguese. It was a farming community. And in the morning, I said to the lady in the house, um, I need to have a shower. Have you got a shower? I've not seen a shower. There's like a hole in the floor for a toilet. And she said, oh, see, see. And, she, and it might not quite have happened like this. But how I like to tell it is <laughs> that she went and got a bucket of water and literally chucked it over my head. And it was that moment of going, what am I, what am I doing? Like, I'm just floating around Portugal um, and so I came back and thought actually I do want to explore faith more so I went to Bible College in London School of Theology and got some really excellent robust in-depth training and resourcing and equipping it was tough it was brilliant it was tough I, I can't I kind of raise them up high enough really um, and in my third year there was writing in my brain the most boring church history essay <laughs> nearly falling asleep but as I was writing about Anabaptists who are phenomenal um, suddenly I just felt God say to me Rach you have got to connect with the next generation and I've never I'd never wanted to be a youth worker I wasn't very cool when I was a teenager teenagers didn't like me when I was a teenager they weren't <laughs> like me when I was louder. but I just came away thinking I've got to explore this so I took a job with YWCA in Eastbourne 
and the YMCA. I began to work with girls at risk of um, sexual exploitation, girls who are abused, um, girls with addictive behaviours, and loved it, like loved it, and thought, actually, this is where I want to be. So that's been it. From then on in, I've been working on the fringes, agitating on the edges, shouting loud about stuff that I'm passionate about, and seeking transformation in lives of girls who are so brilliant, but often have been so broken Mm. by culture. It's interesting hearing people's different experiences of, of places like Theological College, some people kind of go there and it's very unsettling and everything they it thought they unsettling. knew gets pulled yes. apart. It should be like that. It should yes. be like that. <laughs> but it can be quite... There were friends who really had crises and I think some friends have left and walked away from faith. It is a tragedy, yeah. Yeah, that you go to sort of study your faith in more depth and mm. somehow in the middle of that think this doesn't make yeah. sense to me any longer and, yeah. and fall away. That that happened to you? You have friends like that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, I, I, I'm not going to pass any sense of why that and why not me. I don't know. I don't know. But I, but I do know, I do take God at his word that, you know, if you come finding me, if you come looking for me, you'll find me. If you seek me in all your heart. And I think sometimes part of the issue is we feel that our whole heart doing something would feel lovely. But actually, if, you're, if your whole of your being is like chasing down one thing and a kind of, if this lets me down, I have nothing, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. Um, and God is the great comforter of our soul. But he also is a mystery. You know, we've got to chase him down, not knowing not knowing if the life that we've left behind, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's faith, it's a risk. How, how did your faith change whilst at Barber College? Um, well, I, I fell in love a few times. <laughs> I definitely had my sort of delayed, like, oh, he's nice. <laughs> I think I'll marry him. Um, I met You're there the to guy. study, I'm come sorry, on. yes, that's what I make it about faith, about love. Um, I, the reason I make that joke is yeah. my, my parents uh, had that experience. My parents met at Bible College and, uh, and my mum really fancied my dad and Aww. I find this hard to believe as their son, but I apparently know. my dad was really kind of a hit was with the ladies, he? which I find ridiculous um but yeah i find it really amusing that my mum apparently the whole time was like i'm here to study i'm here to study and just had no interest in him and in the end obviously god had other plans so i say that with tongue in cheek that you know you're there to study and not meet anyone because who knows what god can do at these places i just really kicked you just kicked me but it's okay we won't hold it against you (laughs) stop talking about your parents it's about my book no i think how my faith was yes i i think because i arrived hungry actually i would sit in lectures like and and there were some lectures that would literally deconstruct your absolutely right, right. Yeah. They, they would like say right you think this well let's think about this yeah. um but i think actually overwhelmingly the lecturers that i had was were so full of the spirit they just so loved the word of god that actually that for me was it came delivered with that and i i think i just my my awe i've just that has that has grown the older i get the more in awe i am of who god is and how incredible he is and the more i think i'm overwhelmed by his glory and his power so sometimes i feel I know less. I, th- I mean, I realise that sounds a bit strange, but it's what Isaiah says, mm. isn't it? The closer I get to you, the more I realise how unholy I am and how holy you are. And wow, I'm so grateful for you. Yeah. I love the story of how um, in the middle of a church history essay, <laughs> you kind of more or less got this calling into youth work, which of course is now what you're what yes. you're known for. And a lot of your yeah. work is, is in And that. I got three out of 20 for that essay. I mean, that essay bombed. <laughs> it was awful. God was like, it's a waste of time you doing this, Rachel. I was just <laughs> So you said you, you went down to Eastbourne, you started to kind of get stuck in with yeah. with young people what what came next well i did training in brighton and hastings and eastbourne and did my sexual health training down there and i just thought i want to equip myself with all the stuff young people are facing then i moved up to london and got a job um, working with uh, scripture union in high schools in london but because my passion is talking about life and relationships and sex and um, i became known as the god sex lady because <laughs> i would do re lessons and the sex ed lessons and hang out in corridors with kids um, and jason and i got married my husband the guy that i'm a little story about how he met at Bible College so we've been good friends for a few years and I was on the halls of residence so good Bible College women on one floor like men like barbed wire fence men over there and um uh, and one day he came and he came to see if I was in my room and I wasn't so he wrote a note and really big and stuck it on my bedroom door and it said we weren't dating at stage he said Rachel we need to talk I'm pregnant I think it's yours which I just thought was the funniest <laughs> thing ever and I got into so much trouble for it I was like check the biology <laughs> and so I, I like this guy I think I could spend my life with him so we got married um and then it was while I was 
um, working um, as a schools outreach worker in North London, that um, the a media company approached me and said, look, we really want to do a documentary series of how Christian teenagers in the UK are taught about sex and relationships. And I went away and thought, that's a bit boring. <laughs> and also, I don't want to set Christian kids up to fail. I know that I was just working this stuff out as a teenager. I don't want to put any Christian kids up there. But I said, I'd be happy to do an experiment where young people who are not from the Christian community at all uh, experiment mm. with a kind of a, a habit, a practice of life, yeah. um, and see what happens. And so the rest is history. That was No Sex Please with Teenagers, which was a three-hour, three-part documentary series on BBC Two, uh, where we encourage these 12 incredible North London boys and girls aged 15, 16, to just for a period of time delay sexual activity. Yeah. And it was radical for them, absolutely radical. Um, and then off the back of that came the Romance Academy. A lot of Christians in, in your position would be approached by this sort of TV company. We want to do a documentary about sort of, you know, sex and, <laughs> and, and you as a Christian and whether young people should be engaging yeah. in sexual activity. I imagine a lot of people would, would think, oh, no, this is going to go horribly wrong. <laughs> yes. um, you know, ma the mainstream media have got it in for us as Christians yeah. is, is how some people feel. Yeah, yeah. We can't touch this. So yeah. presumably it was quite a lot of bravery involved in that decision and saying yes. Oh, bless you. I think it was slight youthful ignorance, actually, that we said yes, because the team around me were saying, are you, are you sure, Rachel? And I had this lovely guy called Dan, who was a youth worker that I'd worked with in the area, and he was phenomenal. But the pair of us, we were like, actually, this, let's just make this fun. Like, if, if these kids come back and say, no, this is pointless then actually what's been lost? Nothing's been lost because I still live that way. I still choose to make uh, my sexuality come in line and my sexual desires come in line with what God says I can get up involved with. Um, and for these young people, it was a very kind of low level, just culture says age 15, 16, you should be having sex. What if you just said, I'm not going to actually for nine months? Thank you very much. Yeah. And, this, and, and for them, this wasn't necessarily a Christian thing. No, oh, not at all. No, I mean, they knew we were Christians, but it was just, it was like an Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. It was, I suppose behind it is the belief that I have, which is, is that I think culture is quite aggressive to young people. I think this idea of sexual consent, which is so important, I think culture removes young people's consent. Actually, I think culture says to young people, actually, you can consent as long as it's saying yes. And now we understand a bit more now nuanced around kind of coercion, exploitation, and we understand that. But but I think young people grow up in a culture knowing in their heads that they can say yes or no. But in reality, in the situation, there doesn't feel like no is a, is a genuine answer. So Dan and I were like, let's just have fun um, and let's see what happens. So we quickly knew that if this was going to be like a, and now we think this, and no, everyone will switch off. That's mm. boring. Whereas if we said, here are some young people that have never engaged with faith. Let's see what they do with this way of life. And, and actually three of them um, became Christians at the end of the project. All 12 of them, in their own way, found it incredibly liberating because it, it gave them space just to ask questions about who they are and their value and, and it made them reassess why they do what they do and it reminded them that they are powerful and unique and they can think for themselves and they can make decisions, they can decide, not slide. Um, and so I think it was, I mean, wonderfully, lots of the broadsheets did hate us and I think that was probably <laughs> quite good, actually, because I think, I think in a way... Um, it was a successful program. It kind of challenged the idea that all young people need is just information. No, they need a whole heck of a lot more than just information. They need support. Mm -hmm. And they need adults to get off their backsides and get in their world and cheer them on. So. It, it seems to me there's a theme developing in this interview already about kind of being radical. A lot of what you shared already oh, bless uh, you. Is, is, is that, isn't it? It's mm. like, okay, we're, we're called as Christians to be different here. Yeah. And this no sex please with teenagers is a prime yes. example of where yes. Christianity is very different to the culture yes. and how, how that interacts. And what was so fun, Sam, is that I I remember speaking a few times at Whitehall about it and doing some press releases and, and people being very much like, oh, Rachel, you sum up everything that is horrible and repressive about um, about Christianity. And, sex. and again, we were not talking about sexuality. We were talking just about these young people having sex or not having sex. And, um, and I just felt in those environments, I was like, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but look at these 12 teenagers. They've just had a nine-month course where they now have left it feeling, I know a bit more who I am and how I'm going to make the choices that I want to make later. So it almost felt like, yeah, you can have that view. That's fine. That's you're from the church. We've definitely fed that unhelpfully. Um, but but look at these teenagers. Mm. Like, look at them. They're, they're different now because they've just had the opportunity to do it differently. And I think I quite liked that. It was quite agitating to mm. church and to culture. How, how do you tackle that perception that some people would have who aren't Christians of just you're being prudish? Um, well, I think I'd like to know what they mean by prudish. I think, I think um, 
feeling that sex is a big topic and we need to treat it with caution if that's what they mean by prude I'm all over that if they mean by prudish like I'm a bit squeamish and um, the thought that girls want to have sex and the thought that boys want to have sex is kind of like oh no I'm not that's not me at all I I because I'm a Christian, I believe we are body, mind, soul and spirit. And I believe that our sexuality and our sexual desires is a significant part of who we are. And I think we've got to be talking about that. Mm. It's interesting because I think in the church community, some people are like, just stop talking about it. Stop it. But I think interestingly, I, I, I am someone that's aware that this is a big topic. And I don't just want to talk about it to kind of make it normal as if like we're talking about a burger, we're talking about having sex. No, actually using a burger and having sex are two very different things. But let's make it normal to talk about it, even if the way we handle it, we might want to use certain words to honour each other or to be respectful of each other. But let's not be silent because when there's silence, that space is filled with shame and we don't want that. So was it off the back of the success, really, of this documentary that you then started to go around to schools and to talk more about yes. sex? <laughs> yes. Well, I always had been. So I think the You'd always is, talked about sex. Yeah. This is just, we're yeah. now so going to do it in schools. Exactly. So Dan and I were always doing this kind of stuff. They just happened to film it. But I think then there was a sense in which other youth workers are saying, well, we do this kind of stuff. Can we, can we just grab, nick your ideas? So we then quickly, and I remember the first training day we did, which was, I don't know how, why people didn't ask their money back, I don't know. We just <laughs> literally stood there and went, oh yeah, and then we did this. Oh yeah, and then we did this. Um, whereas now there's like a fully formed resource. And because actually we, we discovered that this is not rocket science. And youth workers, Christian and non-Christian youth workers all around the UK are doing this kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. It's just sometimes helpful to have it all like squashed together in one package isn't it yeah, yeah. that's romance that academy. is romance academy it still exists and it's now part of youthscape it's one of the youthscape's projects so for yeah. those who haven't come across it do you want to give us the spiel on what is romance so academy? now it's a 10 session resource that you can use with young people that is about providing an opportunity for them to have a positive peer group where they challenge themselves on their behavior they don't have to all sign up to no sex but they have at the begin on the first week their own personal pledge it's called where they think about the challenges that so it could be around social media use it could be around drugs and alcohol it could be around their own sense of self-worth and wanting to participate in the group more but they set themselves a challenge and then for the 10 sessions you talk about everything ranging from love languages you know ending a relationship well what is sexual consent what is faithfulness so it's kind of a judeo-christian view of relationships and um and love and sex um but it's for all young people they would be very affirmed and valued in this Mm. group I'm I'm hearing more and more a, a criticism though of how Christians have engaged with young people about sex and the criticism goes something like this I grew up in a youth group and was told no sex before marriage and that was told me very strongly and you know I might even agree with that as a sexual ethic but actually as I got older as I got mm. married we then started to encounter all these sorts of problems because I'd repressed that part yeah. of my humanity yeah how do you respond to that? Is is that a fair criticism? Yeah, I think it is. And I think probably it comes from a combination of fear. Um, oh, every, our culture is so permissive. So somehow we've got to kind of address that and do the other end. And also because of a lack of understanding of what it means to be creatures who feel desire. And so one of the chapters I've written in this book is just called Desire. And I've tr- and I towards the end I do kind of unpack a bit of the Christian ethic around it. But I but I wanted to avoid it up front. I wanted to just talk about what does it mean that we feel desire? That's because it can it can feel overwhelming to feel desire for somebody or some you know it, it, what do you do with that if, irrespective of whether you're a christian or not like what what do you do with your desires and your urges and, and how do you handle temptation that's a human being thing isn't it so i think the more that we can talk about that i also think young people really appreciate big conversations detailed you know, it's time and space giving to this so we can talk about so what would your ethic be? Like, what are your practices going to be? Your practices of engagement, your practices of abstinence, what are they going to look like? But let's not make that our only conversation. There has to be a why. Mm. Like, why is it that we might say yes to this and no to that? What is the purpose of that? Well, there is a massive gap at the moment, isn't there? Because culturally, it seems the only limitation you put on sex is consent. Mm. If it's two consenting adults, it's fine. But that's mm. very different from a Christian mm. view, isn't it? How mm. do we bridge that gap? Or, or can yeah. we not bridge that gap? Is that just going to be a divide that's always going to well, be there? Well, I think there? we want to kind of enrich the concept of consent, don't we? Because actually, I think the worst thing would be that 
to, for the church to sound like we're saying we don't care about consent. And that's been a kind of damage that's done in the past, isn't it? Um, but I think there's something, there's something richer. There's something about the covenant. There's something about what happens in sexual intimacy and sexual union that is that speaks of something much bigger than just two bodies doing something. I love the message translation of when Paul talks about this is more than skin-to-skin contact. There is something divine that happens here. And so I think there are films like um, Vanilla Sky where um, Cameron Diaz's character says to Tom Cruise, I know we thought it was just sex, but actually my body made a promise to you and now I can't deal with that. And, and, and it's trying to understand that even if we put around sex this fairly tight view that it's just as long as I'm consenting I know it's casual I know it's just just you know there's no strings attached but actually our humanity seeps out of that actually oftentimes we long for more or we hope for more or we feel more pain when that person moves on so quickly and yet in culture we don't often allow ourselves time to say why we kind of and as women because we we're living in a kind of a, a neoliberal sense where we we need to know these are our choices we're we're asserting our choices we're doing it like the boys we're doing it better than the boys we almost then beat ourselves up for feeling our humanity in that moment and men and men need to feel their humanity too and so working with young adults and teenagers what i've noticed is the the teenagers that i work with in schools and whatever come to me heartbroken distressed tra- actually traumatized i would say and when we get to the bottom of it it's because they've connected with somebody over social media or just face to face they've um, shared emotional intimacy they've talked about what they how they really feel about something for the first time ever they share what they're anxious about they share sexual intimacy um, but they say to me but it wasn't a relationship so why do I feel so horrible now that she or he has gone somewhere else and I say well that's because that is a relate that that the fact you haven't labeled that is irrespective what you've done is given yourself and that's what god creates desire for it's that ability for us to give ourselves firstly to god that is where our desires are, are only ever met with embrace and love and strength but then that's that enables us to offer that elsewhere and we need wisdom around how we give ourselves like giving yourself to somebody else that is such a gift like you're going to give yourself to someone don't do that, you know, mindlessly. Do that knowingly, knowing that they're ready to receive that mm. and they're going to be committed to you. There's never been a more challenging time to be a youth worker. Agree, disagree? <laughs> and a more awesome time. No, but you're right. There has never been a more challenging time. And, and they need us, not because we've got all the answers, but because we can advocate for them. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales with you for The Profile on this Saturday afternoon. That was the first part of my interview with Rachel Gardner, but don't go anywhere. Lots more from her coming up right after this. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. Is climate change our biggest threat? Increasing numbers of Christians are saying yes. Find out why in the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine. Plus, we talk to Rachel Gardner, the youth worker, on a mission to instill courage into the next generation of women. And as Google celebrates its 20th birthday, we ask, what happened to its motto, don't be evil? All this, plus features on everything from the death penalty to single parenting. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. We've just been hearing from Rachel Gardner and there's lots more to come in this second part. If you would like to read this interview that we did, it's also published in Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. It's the magazine I edit and I would love you to have a look at this interview in print features some fantastic photos and of course there's loads more great stuff in this issue of the magazine why not request a free copy just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample type your details in we will get in touch and send you a free copy of the magazine absolutely no obligation to subscribe afterwards we just want you to have this as a free gift if you do of course enjoy it then you're more than welcome to join the thousands of those across the UK and beyond who subscribe to the magazine. Receive it through the letterbox every single month. You can do that as well, premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more details on that. But without any further ado, let's listen in to the second part of my interview with Rachel Gardner. 
I wanted to chat a bit about uh, another passion of yours, which is adoption. You've yes. uh, uh, tell us a bit about that journey, how that came about for you on a personal level. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. Well, um, so Jason and I are married, and for about um, ten years, um, struggling to conceive. Both really involved in what we did. So kind of going, mm, this should have happened by now. Um, and also the things like, I was a good girl, God, <laughs> like you owe me. Um, but then after we began to have um, fertility treatment and realised that it's it's me, I'm not able to conceive. Um, and uh, and then going through different fertility treatments and all the time thinking, where do we draw a line on this? Because we want a family, but not at the cost of being so wrecked emotionally and physically that we're just destroyed. And and I think if you have any dear friends or people who are going through infertility treatment, it is, it is really tough. It's really, really tough. Um, and so it came to a point where we, we said, actually, un- unless... You know, we're going to stop now. And I had a GP, um, was a Muslim guy, consultant. He said to us, "We know, I know that you're a couple of faith, and I know that you're trusting God with this." And we, and we said, "Yeah, we are. We're going to stop this now. And what will be, will be. We really trust that that He knows us." And then about a year later, we thought, "Well, we, we've always thought about adoption. Let's have a look." And as we walked into somewhere in in, in London, which became the place that we then uh, did the adoption through and we walked in and everything about it felt oh this feels good like they're really geared up for vulnerable children they're really geared up for families and all through the infertility process um, these lovely um, NHS um, staff would talk to me and and largely ignore Jason Mm. you know this sperm donor (laughs) who happened to be my husband the moment they walked into the adoption space the first phone number they wanted was Jason's and I just bawled my eyes out like oh my goodness they're seeing us as a unit and of course you can adopt if you're single you can adopt if you're in a relationship um but it was just so incredible and and then we began the process and it is difficult it is painful we again we had to deconstruct the notions of giving birth to a child and naming them and then looking like us and having our personality but the more we lent in the more we said yes to the next step the more we felt this is going to be an adventure that will reveal things that we've never dreamed possible and then we brought our little girl home and that oh my goodness that was just incredible and weird like numb weird but amazing um, and then we're going to be adopting very soon again. So we, it, it, we're going to go through all again. <laughs> I've just got her settled to like sleep with the nights. But anyway, never mind. <laughs> never mind. We'll start it all again. So, but it, I think for us, Sam, I don't want to say that the best thing about adoption is that we've learned some spiritual lessons. The best thing about adoption mm. is we get to be our little mm. girl's mum. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what we've learned is that the more we discovered about her background, the more we wanted her. And I suddenly thought when God says that he adopts us into his family... Like, he knows it all. We can't hide anything. But it makes him say, no, no, you're mine. And I will move heaven and earth to kind of bond you to me. So beautiful. Yeah. Amazing. Um, What would you say, though, to to Christians who kind of uh, put off the idea? Because there's there's quite a lot of objections that come up. I mean, one of the classic ones is, isn't this an incredibly long, difficult, Mm. complicated process? There's all sorts of rules about whether Mm. you can or can't. Mm. And then you kind of add on to that the whole Christian element. Mm. Some Christians feel there's... Some some parts of the system have a bit of an agenda yeah. against them, and or how yeah. much can we bring our Christian faith into to raising yeah. this child? Are we going to be yeah. trusted? Uh, you must have re- yes. you know wrestled yes. with all those sorts Absolutely. of questions and more. And there are some awful stories. I don't want to pretend that there aren't, and I don't want in any way to dismiss them at their story and their pain. Um, our social worker is not a Christian. I don't think she's particularly interested in faith in the slightest bit. Um, she's just making sure that we are going to be um, good parents to this child, and um, and has asked us a whole range of questions, which we felt actually we've been able to answer honestly in a way that shows her our heart and what our attitude would be to our child irrespective of what they might want to do in the future I mean one question she asked us was so if you adopt a kid and they they get to about um 15 or 16 and one Sunday morning say they don't want to come to church what would you do we were like my goodness if it gets that far like (laughs) we'd be saying to them come on um so I I think they want to make sure that you're going to be a safe person or a safe because because the children in care are incredibly vulnerable it's it it's very different for them they've been removed from birth family they've not been given up for adoption that doesn't really happen in this country they're removed and so there's a story of pain they have to deal with and and they've been in foster care they might have had a few different families so their sense of certainty and security is all over the shop so they want to make sure that as the parent you feel you've got what it takes to do it and so actually I found last time and this time it taking a long time has felt okay 
because you've just got to get your head around it and prepare, prepare, prepare. Because then when this little one comes home, there, wow, you know, all guns blazing, you're theirs, loving all over them, you know, theirs for life. There's been, um, I mean, I, I know you're involved in Home for Goods, which yes. is a, a Christian, Christian charity that's encouraging more Christians to do this. Uh, and I think Christians are being encouraged now to see this as part of our faith, to see yeah. this as is almost part of our social action work. You know, yeah. we talk about running food banks and we, yeah. we talk about doing street pasturing, but there is an argument, isn't there, that we'll bringing, you know, adopting mm. a child, giving them a family, says something about who God is, mm. that we've been adopted spiritually and we, and we can we can make mm. that point. As you say, even though obviously it is primarily about the child and yes. that's the most important yes, thing. We're not just trying to yes. make a spiritual point no, for the sake no, of it. No. But nevertheless, there has been a bit of a, a, a reawakening amongst thinking. evangelicals And I think this. what's helpful about that is because the, the individual or the couple who are going to be adopting, they are, they are going to be parents. They're not public parents they will be parents of this child and that's absolutely right and so we treat them with the same dignity and space that with every other parent in our church or our community but what the wider church can do is say actually if you're adopting or fostering there might be some specific challenges you face and so we as a church are going to be super safe about that we might have more children in our churches who are dealing with trauma and um, you know all that and, and behavioural <clears throat> issues are a result of that so we can't have churches that say oh your kid's been really noisy in church today can you just not bring them like we need to be a lot more tuned in and I think that's where the missional piece comes in Sam that you're talking about I know also theologically for some Christians if 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 God doesn't answer your prayer to have a baby then God's not blessing you and adoption is always going to be second best well my answer to that would be that God I absolutely convinced that God could have opened my womb he could have done that I have no doubt he could have done that he chose not to and being a parent to an adopted child feels like God's best gift to us um, and so it doesn't feel like anything other than incredible incredible blessing to be their parent and help them to be all they can be so I think sometimes doing that rethinking in our minds this is God's blessing we, we live in a world where there's pain and brokenness in an ideal world my daughter would still be with her birth family mm. of course that's the case but because of their pain and their suffering and their brokenness that is not the case so isn't it brilliant there are people who are able to say well then we've got space come, come be yeah. family with us yeah uh, I wanted to talk a bit about preaching Ooh. because uh, I heard you speak. Uh, it must have been Good Friday at HTB, which was oh, wonderful. Yes. Uh, alternative Good Friday uh, service. And it was just a brilliant service. Really, really enjoyed it. And you, you are doing more and more speaking. Yes. And not just because you've written a book, but yes. because you are yeah. a, a speaker, a preacher. So where did that come from? Where were the first opportunities you had to address a bunch of Christians oh. and to preach? I, don't know. I think I was at the school that I was at, I became head girl. So I think I learned a bit of public speaking. Then I had a stutter, a, a sort of a stammery stutter type of thing when I was a teenager. I just couldn't get my words out. My drama teacher just took me under her wing and just taught me to speak really um so it's it's quite funny to me that I do do quite a lot of public <laughs> speaking because I feel that I'm quite like blah, 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 blah. um but I think increasingly um I'm enjoying the chance to to unpack a passage with often it's younger people but not exclusively so because I love God's word I just find it shines there's so much stuff in there that's so difficult and challenging but it shines there's such wisdom here and I love unpacking it with with young adults and young people so I think I tend to say yes to invitations where the church is really mission-hearted they're outward looking um, they're really keen also I recognize this they're keen to show the women in their congregations that your gender doesn't prevent you from doing whatever it is God wants and I and I recognize that and I, I give them kudos for inviting women to come and do that so it feels like a complete privilege what's the biggest thing that you've learned as you've done more preaching um it is trust in God and greater intimacy because I think we can prepare talks that on paper look good can't we and we should do because we should put the work in and and, and wrestle but actually when I'm up there sharing with people you suddenly realize I can only pass on what I've discovered um, and so the intimate place of saying Lord will you feed me and speak to me is so essential because that's that's I think what prevents me from then standing there going oh my goodness who am I to be stood here and I do still do like why have they asked me I don't know anything <laughs> um, and that's that's quite nice I think lots of leaders feel that in yes. voice don't we but that the, what will make the difference is then clothing yourself in prayer and saying spirit you you speak you yeah. lead me mm. and in the meantime youthscape yes. marches on we do with march all the on. stuff that you're involved in okay. again for those who haven't come across it do you want to 
uh, explain a bit about what you yeah, what you guys stand for. Based in the mighty Luton, I've been around for about the, 20, mighty, the Luton. mighty Luton. <laughs> We've been around for about twenty five years, but only the last four years really been a national presence. Um, and we innovate new models and new ways of doing youth ministry. We have a research centre, and a bit of research a couple of years ago found that about seventy five percent of churches in the UK have no teenagers or young or children in them. So our eyes are really fixed on the early adopter churches that would like to get youth work going and growing in their churches so we are passionate advocates of the volunteer youth worker um, so we run the national youth ministry weekend that comes out that happens in november second time uh, it's the second time um and and we're really keen to just add our voice and fuel and fire to whatever god's doing yeah. so 75 percent of churches don't have a single teenager yeah, no. so here's a million dollar question yes why um i think sometimes because it could be that actually over the years, the church has got older, 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 older. And, and sometimes it takes a while to wake up to the fact that all of you are you're in your 60s, which doesn't mean that you're, you know, actually reaching out to 60-year-olds is very significant. But I think um, it can be very hard to start something from scratch. Um, it could be that they've got children and their children leave around the age of 10, 11, 12, which is a kind of natural drop-off point, isn't it, with football on Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings and things. Um, but I think as well... Sometimes it's a lack of um, actually making it a core part of the church's vision and strategy. Young people won't just automatically rock up. You need to be a church that gets ready for them. I mean, actually, we, we run something called Youth Work Sunday, which is about churches like this who might have one teenager or half a teenager <laughs> saying we're going to have a Sunday morning that's focused on praying for local young people and saying, God, help us be a church that's ready for teenagers. And I think God will take that seriously and do something with it. But it, I mean, you know, you look at the the general trends here, and they're not good. It's not mm. it's not just the statistic you mentioned. It feels like almost every month that goes by, there's a new yeah. stat on secularization of the country or the church thing is specifically just dropping off. Um, and you know, there've been remarks, but you know, if if current trends continue, mm, dot dot dot, yes. that must concern you. It does concern us, and and obviously, sometimes those if current trends continue tend to come from the mainstream denominations, and they are absolutely struggling. I'm part of the C of E. We are really struggling, um, but there are some really exciting new innovations happening. Youth ministers. Um, but the question is, is the Church of England going to make? room for enough of those new innovations <gasps> oh, to happen because i hear this quite a yeah, lot of yeah. oh there's good yeah. pockets and you think well yes but yeah. good pockets might not be enough mm. well we, we work with what we've got don't we and i'm a, an endless optimist as you can hear one thing that's quite exciting i think is youth ministers where you have a church that sees itself as a resourcing church for the area i think the idea that churches can individually with the resources they have be able to do all this is kind of um a bit um naive isn't it whereas if there are churches in areas that see themselves as bigger than just that one mile radius i think we can begin to bring about change we've just done a, a project with kensington actually where we took 12 church leaders with no young people in their churches and just took them through a coaching course and each one of them off the back of it has started something small but significant that shifted the DNA of the church and is making a noise in the community that we're here for teenagers I think there will always be churches like the Abundant Lives of This World um, and Kingsgate and Peterborough who do a brilliant massive youth ministry and we should cheer them on and learn from them but our focus is on the smaller churches that want to work well with 10 could you imagine working well with 10 if, ev- you know, if every church worked, worked well with 5 or 10 teenagers suddenly there's transformation isn't mm. there so I think we've got to stop thinking big, glossy, and start thinking five, six, seven, nine, ten teens. Yeah. What would it take to support them? It's kind of, um, as you say, though, it's less glossy. It's almost less exciting for some people to even want to talk about, isn't it? <laughs> yes. We just want the big results quickly. I know. Let's chat about where we're at with culture and young people, because one, one of the things that I've noticed more and more, I mean, a conversation I had just the other day uh, with a teenager in my church, and she said, you know, this Brexit stuff, she said, all the old people voted for it. Mm. I didn't get a vote. I'm mm. young. And it's going to affect me. It's not going to affect them. She mm-hmm. said, you know, they're going to die, was mm-hmm. her was her attitude. Yeah. And I'm going to be living in a, a disastrous climate. This is this is her view and culture once Brexit happens. It's not fair. Why could the old people vote? Why didn't I have a voice? Mm-hmm. Some very interesting things going on there, yeah. particularly about a kind of divide that seems more pronounced than ever between old and young. Yeah. How do we heal that? Because from a Christian yeah. point of view, surely that isn't good. No. And I, and I think it's maybe understanding why that feels so painful for the younger generations and, and for the older generations to really hear that. Because I hear that a lot. And I felt angry too, actually. I live in a very multicultural, diverse part of North London and was horrified that the rest of the country had voted how they had. I felt embarrassed, actually. Now, I know that voting was not around racial lines, but that's how it felt, I think. And for younger generations, what it feels like for many of them is 
the old generation just wants us to live on an island and be secluded away and untouched by the world. And the younger generation like, this is our world. God loves this world. There are less divides between race and globe and nations. So I think we need to understand where that's coming from and, it, and, and creating spaces where old and young can hear each other's heart. I voted for Brexit doesn't mean I'm a racist, you know, that, to actually really talk about this. Um, I, love, I love church catching the vision that youth ministry is um, it's a family affair that we do this together. For all I'm advocating for volunteers and youth workers, the best youth work surely happens where a church sees themselves as family first and there are no divisions between who can access who. Um, I also think social media is an echo chamber, isn't it? And we tend to be followed by people that think like us. And so helping young people to not mm. just be inhabiting that space too is important. What does what does the echo chamber effect of social media mean for critical thinking mm. for today's generation? Do I, you worry about that? I, I do. Yeah, I do. Because do I think you you're probably much more glued, clued up as an editor of a magazine as well because well, you're trying to I'm worried about myself I think you know if we're all in, a, in an echo chamber as you say which I, th- I think there's some truth to if that's really going on and we're only really hearing people who agree with us then it doesn't teach us how to think no Elizabeth Oldfield at Fierce Tank they are brilliant around this kind of stuff and so she does this great thing she has to hide her phone and lock it away and change and to try and train her brain to get out of that kind of soundbite because the problem is isn't it that soundbites are never the whole picture and, and yet you are judged the whole of what you think about something is judged on that one soundbite so it kind of encourages a volatility and a kind of an aggressive um, argumentative state and, and wisdom is the unrolling the unfolding of ideas and working out how that looks in someone's life that's a, I mean I love social media can I just say I love it <laughs> but the problem with it is that I can't this lovely person who is doing all this stuff on social media I actually don't know where that wisdom lands in their life mm. I can't see what difference it makes in their life and surely if something is good and true and noble and praiseworthy it should be empowering you to live a life that is radical so I'm not. I, so if it's not, I'm not really interested in your tweet. Well, I am. I'll, I'll like it. I like. I like your tweets. Sam. Thanks. I appreciate like the encouragement. <laughs> uh, you've got quite the following online, and that does bring me to a question I wanted to ask um, about the new book because there's there is a kind of perception from some of Christian publishing these days that well, you know, the books that get published aren't necessarily the 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 best ideas or uh, really what the church needs to hear the the best books that get published are by those who have some sort of a platform because this is the Mm. way of the world Mm. right that Mm. we need to sell books need to turn a profit this is understandable so we need to find someone who's got a large following on social media or speaks at big events and then we get them to write a book and we can turn a profit out of this is is that is that a fair uh perception of, of where not just I'm, yeah. I'm not just trying to single out christian publishing here this is yes. the way publishing works. yes yeah well i i suppose the age-old thing is that you want to see how people respond to what somebody says so it could be two thousand years ago one person chatting in a market square and when they chat 50 people come and listen oh let's give them a book deal you know so i think in in a way that's probably always been true it's just that today the vehicles for that are and i guess there probably is an element of that in there i i guess my dear publishers would want to kind of push back from that and say um actually we're a little bit more nuanced than that like that might be an interesting introduction to somebody but actually that's that's kind of screensaver isn't it what we really want to see is the kind of the content of their life and who they are and i really feel in doing this book with hodge they have absolutely like stuck their hands into my gut and gone come on there's more in there stop getting on social media and start writing so I think there probably is a sense of the book cover is like yeah but actually if there's nothing behind Sam do you want a book deal is that what this is about that's exactly what I want that's that's why I asked that question and you know I can already hear the other half of my brain saying that's all very rich of you Sam talking about that but you're a magazine editor (laughs) you you make these decisions as well so yeah hey I'm not no one's uh, no one's innocent in this are they but um let's let's chat about the book it's called the girl deconstruction project wildness wonder and being a woman why did you want to write this <laughs> i didn't want to write it actually it took two years for hodder to convince me to write it so in that well there you go that's the answer to the last question <laughs> yes, isn't it yeah but Ian took me out for lunch two years ago i was like come on you've got to write you've got to write a book for girls that are not teenagers anymore and i was like no Ian, i only write for teenagers <laughs> because then i can write like short sentences um <laughs> but then i thought no i'll take he took me out twice for lunch and he was like i will not let you off the hook with this was it a nice lunch it was a nice lunch help? both times yeah um and then i thought i will I so that's, I said to him, well, I'll, I'll kind of do a whole fleece thing. So last summer, I did a bit of research among a thousand girls aged 15 to 25 across all the festivals. And I asked three questions. I asked them to anonymously answer 
um, the kind of girl I am is, the kind of girl I'm not is, the kind of girl I want to be. I deliberately used the word girl to see what they did with that word. Um, and the results were staggering. And, and when I looked back through the results, I thought, no, I do want to write something mm. actually because there's something here that I want to kind of... So I, I think it took that because yeah. I was like, oh, what am I going to say? I've got nothing to say that, that I don't spout about everywhere else. But this book has felt like, oh, I want to respond to that. So what were the results that made you want to write the book? Well, in a nutshell, and I'm not a great kind of analyst, but in a nutshell, the, the, the responses were either the kind of girl I'm not is, I'm not like her. So I'm not easy, I'm not two-faced, I'm not hypocritical, I'm not a Pharisee kind of thing. Yeah. I would have been a bit like that as a teenage girl. Um, or the other half was, I'm not pretty, I'm not loved, I'm not good enough, I'm not clever, I'm not thin enough. Um, but the, the answers to the kind of girl I want to be, pretty much 95% of responses was one word, and the word was confident. And they were filling this in anonymously on their own. So 95% of, of 1,000 girls saying they want to be confident. I was like, oh, what would hmm. that look like? But I didn't want to write about confidence right. um, because confidence comes, it's a, it's a product of experience. Um, so I thought, let me write about courage and let me write about the courage of breaking down some of the lies around body, mind, soul and strength and hmm. then reconstructing. So it is a kind of a... That is, that is a fascinating idea though because just as you said that, I, I can think of a number of very, very capable women mm. who I work with or who I interact with who don't have that confidence mm. and yet mm. you look at what they're doing and you mm. think that mm. there should be confidence there so it, it, are we saying there's a kind of uh, cultural societal thing here to do with gender that has we've just grown up in a world where men are able to feel more confident for whatever reason women aren't are, are there reasons yeah. behind that i i guess they probably are and again you probably someone else sat in this chair to answer some of the more nuanced stuff around gender um identity and that kind of stuff but i think how i would translate it is the word confidence has, has a special re ringing for these girls for these women they see it as something they will attain to one day not something that their life experience will give them so it made me think are they holding back from the experiences that would give them confidence is there a passivity that has crept into the christian church around women you've got to be quiet you've got to sit back you've got to be passive and because that happens and you don't try anything and get the confidence that comes from it um, and so whereas a man might give something a go and then go oh yeah that was awesome that was bad whatever and just clocks up to experience yeah. women go i can't do something until i absolutely know i can absolutely absolutely do this but that feeling of absolutely no, i can do this that won't come right. you have to do it and then go do you know the world did not end and it's okay i can do it a bit more next time so that's why i talk about courage because i think it takes courage i mean it's bren brown stuff isn't it, it takes courage to say i'm gonna be seen now in saying that i don't want to add to the victimization of women and say they're all sat at home doing nothing because that's not the case but the times where they do lean in often they feel they're not allowed to or they the whole time the narrative in their head is so loud like you're the only woman here the men are going to laugh at you that it kind of becomes a non-experience mm. so really it was a book to say this is your body live in it and lead in it this is your mind you haven't got to be controlled by the thoughts in your mind there are things you can do this is your soul you know, your body gives flesh and blood expression to your soul who you are is awesome and this is your power this is what you are capable of like go do some stuff mm. yeah so this is for individuals yes um, I mean a whole group of 100 could be at the same time that's fine <laughs> <laughs> it's for individuals but I, I just wonder if there are learnings here for, for wider oh, church I culture see. okay yeah I hope so and actually one lovely guy tweeted to me tweeted to me um Rachel I've never really thought that I need to listen to the voice of women and and listen to the podcast and reading the books made me realize that I do and I thought well that's interesting because I wouldn't he would strike me as being somebody who does listen to women but it maybe it just helped him consider what mm. the voice of a woman might bring him this is a loaded word and people will interpret it in different ways but is this a feminist book um it, if it's a fe yes, uh, yes, it is. You're comfortable with that word, yeah, personally. Absolutely, yeah. How would you define that word? Well, I think I think every woman who calls themselves a feminist will define it along certain tracks. So for me, feminism is I believe God created male and female equal. That Eve is given that wonderful word of being the helpmeet, which is strong rescuer. Um, and so for me, feminism in the 21st century as a Christian woman is about speaking out against oppression of women and girls around the world. It's about showing that girls and women have um, the opportunities to explore all that God's given them. It means getting involved in politics and education and in church leadership. Um, but it also means respecting women where their decisions 
of what it means to live for Jesus might land differently to me around issues like headship. Um, so I think for me, it feels like a generous open space. There are, there are feminist friends that I have that we would feel very differently on some of the core issues that would define feminism in certain circles. But I feel that I can hold that word mm. really closely. A lovely friend of mine, Natalie Collins, said that Jesus saved my life and feminism made sense of my life. And I, and I quite like, I wouldn't say as far as that for me, um, but I think for me, feminism has become, a, a Christian feminist become a space that I feel is life bringing to me. And as um, president of the Girls Brigade I am invested in girls I do want to see them flourish and I think Jesus stands alongside mm. me with that and says yeah come on mm. but first and foremost I belong to Jesus mm. If we're talking about feminism being equality between men and women it seems like almost everybody is yes. there yes. it does seem like the outworking of that yes you know, I can think of a number of Christian women who, who would balk at the word feminist. Yes, yeah, and I, would, I, I, yeah. you know, I'm sure there are many reasons for that. But if you just compare some Christian understandings of the word feminist with the mainstream understanding, I mean, one of the classic examples mm. that come up is something like abortion, mm. where you know you can identify as a Christian mm. feminist, but you probably would be mm. also pro-life. And mm. there are those in the mainstream feminist world who mm, can't get their head around that. that. Yeah. So you can understand why there are still some reluctance in Christian circles to completely yeah. take that word on board. There's a really interesting podcast called Guilty Feminists at the moment that's hosted by um, people who are mainly secular atheists and yet listening to their conversations week in week out they are recognising that there are women of other faiths and no faiths who might hold very different views around a number of things abortion included and the question is loving women might mean that things land differently for other people and I think even um we're kind of revisiting quite a lot of these labels, pro-life, pro-choice as well, mm. aren't we? I mean, these are so sensitive and so difficult yes, to absolutely. talk about. But I think actually it's helpful, I think, for women like myself to speak out and say, I love women. I love what God has placed in their lives. There are massive issues that actually are not just about women sorting things out. This is about the whole of humanity. I think abortion is one of the issues that women have a very important voice in. But this has to be about more than just women speaking as well. And that's probably where mm. also I, I differ from some of my feminist friends who'd say actually only women can really speak on that issue I think there are a number of issues that we all need to speak Mm. on but we need to be listening I think if there's one thing really powerful the feminist voice can bring to the church is you need to listen to women you need to listen to the experiences of women we're fast running out of time but I really did want to talk about a campaign that you launched that was incredibly successful and which I felt was a wonderful example of good positive and effective Christian campaigning because I don't know about you I get sent quite a lot of uh, requests for can you sign this petition can you sign that petition if I'm honest I get a bit um kind of jaded jaded by the whole thing and think does this really make a difference but but you were involved in a campaign that really did make a difference um and it was to do with a shop um which had a sign up which was send me nudes and you saw that sign and you were uh, understandably horrified by it and launched a petition or you you tell the rest of the story well my friend rebecca rumsey saw it she took her two teenage girls in and and she took a photo of it and her girls like mom don't embarrass me so she's like who can i send this to who will kick up a stink i'll send it to rachel so she sent me the image and i said shall we do something about it she's like yes so so I started an online campaign that she was fully engaged with but I think really I mean I was incensed I was and I was also like for goodness sake like this is because I work with girls who are sexually exploited girls who feel they have to take naked images themselves for whoever wants it boys who feel they have to ask girls they feel they can't say no um to that either and I was just like come on stores like so it was a little bit like I'm not even going to sound moralistic I'm just going to tell you you're wrong because this is so appalling what was so interesting which is moralistic isn't it but what was so interesting is that that signature it was signed within three days 9,000 people had signed it and Blue Water management got massively involved and they got the, the shop to take the sign down um, and I went and thanked the women in the store because it wasn't their choice to put the sign up it was management so I went and thanked them with flowers and, and booze but what was really interesting was again a lot of feminist women who are not Christians got involved with the campaign because I think um, although I was critiqued in mainstream culture in, in press for being approved again I said, actually, an under 16, an under 18-year-old girl's body, do we want social media full of those naked images? Like, is that what a progressive society wants? So I think, actually, we could harness quite a wide voice around this one issue. And I think, as Christians, we need to do that a little bit more. Of course, there might be other things we disagree on. But if we're all harnessed around this one idea, mm. Dubs Amendment, you know, this family separation stuff, um, you know, how do you feel about Trump coming to England? You know, whatever it is, we can harness a voice around that because we share our common humanity. Mm. And and I, I was very delighted about that. I guess what was so shocking about that was, if, if I remember correctly, the shop in question was a shop for young for girls, teenage girls yeah. for young women. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, not that it would have been any better if it was a shop for men, no. but even so, you think it's for under young, eighteen shopping, yeah, under eighteen girls to be walking into a shop and see a sign like that. But as I say, it was a wonderful example of positive Christian campaigning because this 
this this caught fire. That it did, a lot yeah. of, as you say, it wasn't just Christians involved, and it, there was yeah. actually a result at the end of it. Yeah. Did you learn lessons through that? Of okay, yes. do Christians, we have to pick our battles. We have to know yes. when's the right yes. time to do it. Yeah. And we actually wanted we want to be involved in campaigns, to actually see success and yes. see results. And I think you're right about the positive tone. So we very quickly said, respect girls more, take this sign down. So it was very much focused on our purpose is not a kind of a um, uh, where you have to kind of check spaces. No, no, this is about girls being in that space that you've now made dangerous. And I think, I mean, my friend talks on one of the podcasts about her teenage daughter going onto the dance floor at a nightclub and guys groping her. And it's like, it's not okay that there are spaces like this that everyone turns a blind eye to. We've got to stop turning blind eye. Now, the danger is I could start a campaign every day, couldn't I, about something else. And I'm not going to, and I'm, you want to pick your battles in inverted commas and also know who you're fighting against i was not fighting against the people in the store that put the sign up i was fighting against those really high up that had allowed that decision to be made so i made it very clear that i thanked the women in the store and that when i took the flowers in i said oh i'm rachel they were all a bit like <gasps> i said no i've got some flowers and some to thank you because you were under authority that like you couldn't take the sign down you'd, you'd have lost your job and um, but they always said to me we, when you start the campaign we hadn't realized about that and of course that's ridiculous and one of us covered it very quickly you know as the campaign was going on but it took head office to let us take it down so i think it's also see everybody around mm. you as a hero like call out of them their radical heart that they want to change this too and when you hit that person when you sorry when you find that person who is not wanting change because of whatever it is because of money whatever it is then you go for them <laughs> but anyway you might want to edit that bit out <laughs> no no editing required i like that very good well um Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much oh, for, for coming in and chatting. Great to hear what you're involved in. Just before we go, tell me, what does the future hold? You've got the new book, as I say, yeah. The Girl Deconstruction Project. I know you were in Waterstone signing oh, copies no, the other today. day. Which, no, today. Was it today? Yes. Is this tonight? Yeah, tonight. <laughs> Excellent. So, you know, book signings and, and a yeah. lot of it. What else have you got planned? Come September, we're going to have child number two moving home, so my life will change dramatically. But that's exciting. That is exciting. Thanks so much for listening to the Profile podcast this week. It's been great to have you with us. I do hope you enjoyed that. I have to say that's one of my personal favourites as far as interviews go. I really appreciated Rachel opening up on so many different topics and sharing her perspective with us. That interview was also written up and appears in Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian magazine. It's the publication that I edit and I'd love you to have a free copy. Why not check out the print version of that interview? It features some fantastic photos as well and of course loads more interesting articles, interviews, all sorts. Get a free copy premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample simply type your details in and we'd be delighted to send you a free copy of the magazine with no obligation to subscribe of course many people who do see the magazine do then want to take out a subscription if you want to do that we would welcome that why not join the thousands of others across the uk and beyond who receive premier christianity magazine through their letterbox each and every month if you want to go ahead and do that straight away premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe is the link you need but for now i'm afraid that does bring us to the end of the show if you enjoyed this podcast we'd really appreciate it if you just take a couple of seconds to rate and review us wherever you found this podcast it would really help other people uh, discover the content that we're putting out and of course if you want to share this episode or the podcast in general on your social media channels again that would really help us and we would appreciate it but for now time to say goodbye thank you once again for joining us we'll see you next week